Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air. I know it had been a while since I was on the air last, and I'm sure many of you all were wondering when I would even come back on the air again next. But here we are in the middle of the week, and I'm on the air, and I feel like I'm on at the right time. But then again, I don't think there's ever been a bad time for me to to have been on the air with you all. But one thing that I've been really impressed with after uh, three uh, podcast uh, segments for uh, Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution, is the results. But then again, the results for every series I've done per episode has been encouraging. But what I've found unique about this one is that in um, three um, episodes, there have been at least... uh, probably just shy, or rather I should say just over 140 plays total for the three episodes combined. That tells me right there that many of you all whom thought you knew everything there was to know about the Boston Tea Party from previous years or just in general are now coming to appreciate what really spurred this movement. Not just a movement, but what eventually would come to the events that led up to uh, December 16th of 1773. So when I was on the air last with all of you, we were talking at the very end about a uh, 21-year-old lieutenant colonel from Virginia whom thought he was doing the right thing by pursuing the what he thought was an enemy, but it turns out that it was um, a non-military um, what do you call it, non-militaristic matter. So I'm beginning to wonder if, in fact, that, you know, all of us can make mistakes, but I'm beginning to wonder if this uh, mishap by this uh, 21-year-old lieutenant colonel from Virginia being George Washington, if, in fact, the um, actions he took may have been the early sparks that led to what we know is that infamous Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. So, we have a lot to cover in this uh, podcast segment. But then again, I think we always seem to have a lot to cover, but that's what's great about telling the story. After all, an event of historic significance just doesn't happen overnight. There has to be a lot of history beforehand that leads to the inevitable. In this case, the inevitable being that fateful night years later of December 16th, 1773. So our first uh, leadoff question will be the following. Did Lieutenant Colonel George Washington's indecisive military actions from May 27th, 1754 have ramifications? If any of you all know what the word, you know, ramification means, it's, you know, another word or I should say term for like consequence. So, the question is, did Lieutenant Colonel George Washington's indecisive military actions from May 27th, 1754 have ramifications? Yes, they did. Some felt his his indecisiveness or lack of military experience led to a quick decision resulting in the deaths of um, French troops. While it may have been just 10 troops, but... You know, even the smallest number of deaths on the opposite side do have um, consequences that um, that can be um, not just fatal, but can be um, 
that have long-term uh, negative repercussions. On the other hand, um, there were those on the French side uh, who survived, and they claimed that the mission itself was diplomatic. Did you hear that, folks? Diplomatic versus military, a.k.a. militaristic. Yes, Washington had not been in the military before 1754. As I told you all from the previous uh, podcast, he had been a surveyor. He surveyed for Lord uh, Thomas Fairfax. Fairfax, folks, uh, for those of you who are in Virginia, Fairfax County. So, yes, surveying is very important. But if you don't have the proper military experience, that can be a disadvantage. Washington also did not have the proper means to go about obtaining intelligence from officers above. Okay, Lieutenant Colonel, you know, that's a, that might be a unique uh, distinction, but when I think of uh, military ranks from above, how about, you know, Colonel, General? So yeah, George Washington does not have, did not have any means to go about obtaining intelligence from high rank, higher ranking officers above. So it, it's fair to say that for George Washington, he was caught up in the moment of what he thought was a surprise attack. Well, well, yes, it was a surprise attack, but he was caught up in the moment thinking that what he was achieving was to um, solidify um, the peace, not the peace, but to solidify the safety of his command above, uh, below him or of the uh, troops below him. But what it turned out is that uh, Washington was probably given faulty intelligence. Faulty intelligence from within. Sometimes that happens in missions. We even see it in today's modern world where the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, CIA officials, sometimes get um, faulty intelligence. But in 1754, the West, a.k.a. the Ohio Territory, still remains in France's possession. 1754 also saw British authorities go as far as requesting America's royal governors, that is, royal governors from all 13 colonies. British authorities have gone as far as requesting America's royal governors to make, or I should say devise, the necessary steps or necessary strategical steps, how about, to prepare for the inevitable. What would be the inevitable, folks? War with France. Not just war with France, but how about if in the event war with France were to arise? To me, that would sound like a more, um, what do you call it, safe approach to take here, because... No official declaration of war has taken place, but given that George Washington's indecisive military actions have taken place already, I think it's fair to say that, um, that British authorities are doing the right thing by going as far as devising, not just devising, but telling America's royal, royal governors to start making the necessary strategical plans, have some kind of game plan in play, in the event war itself with France were to arise. In other words, how are you going to defend your borders? How are you going to defend the coastline? How are you going to defend um, areas where there's a lot of coming and going? 
and not just coming and going, but those borders where it leads into the frontier territory where you still have Indians. Indians who could easily become allies with the French. Now, in 1754, um, between June 19th and July 11th of uh, 1754, delegates from the New England colonies, being Massachusetts, Connecticut, and um, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, including um, the colonies, including delegates from the colonies of New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, all met in Albany, New York. Why did they meet in um, Albany, New York? But then again, why, why were all these delegates meeting? Well, they met because, for one, the, it was a convention. And this wasn't a convention about anything um, that had just been uh, created invention-wise. But it was known as the Albany Congress or the Albany Convention. There were um, a couple of things uh, going on here at this um, gathering. The Albany Congress was going above and beyond, the delegates were to the Congress, were going above and beyond to try to win over the support from the Iroquois nation in fighting against the French, along with forming a unified colonial alliance per the request of, of a soon-to-be prominent forefather, Mr. Benjamin Franklin, who by 1754 is close to 50 years of age. He is the oldest of our forefathers. So, you know, think about it. Uh, in 1733, when uh, Parliament enacted the Molasses Act, Benjamin Franklin was 27 years old. Samuel Adams was 11 years old. George Washington's only a year old, folks. So that tells you that there are some um, big uh, age gap disparities at that time. But in 1754... Benjamin Franklin, you know, who, who will become one of our um, leading prominent forefathers, has um, requested that the colonies be unified um, in uh, fighting the war against the French. And the Iroquois Nation is, is in New York. You know, the Iroquois Nation is comprised of, the, uh, of such tribes as the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Canandaigua, uh, the Oneida, um, the um, the Tuscarora, um, and of course the uh, the Iroquois themselves. It's basically you know, the at one time it was the five Indian uh, nation, um, and then in 1722 the Tuscarora joined, making it uh, the sixth uh, six Indian nation. Well, Benjamin Franklin's proposal for a unified colonial alliance amongst all 13 colonies failed, and it failed big time. Why did it fail, folks? Because the colonies themselves were afraid of losing their own independence. Wait a minute, you mean they have independence already? I didn't think independence came until 1776 when, in Philadelphia, the, Con the Continental Congress officially decided to go about declaring its separation from England. This is a different kind of independence, folks, in 1754. What do all 13 colonies Prior to the Seven Years' War, or a.k.a. French and Indian War, breaking out, what do all 13 colonies have in common that they are afraid of losing? Their own independence. Their, their, basically, their individual right to self-govern. 
Think about it, folks. In 1754, our 13 colonies, the colonial legislatures, have the right to self-govern. Yes, there is a royal governor to oversee the legislative affairs, but the legislature does have a right to implement, the state legislatures rather have their own right to implement their own laws, but at the same time, they aren't being um, dictated uh, by a tyrant 3,000 miles away across the ocean who could be doing the exact opposite. So it's fair to say that just before hostilities really, really break out, that we still have it pretty good. I mean, we've seen some, um, we call it drama, unfold. We've seen um, resistance in New England with the Molasses Act. But despite, you know, Parliament's first attempts at um, curtailing the uh, growth of an industry, all in all, relations are still pretty good between the Crown and the 13 colonies in 1754. But it is fair to say that the Albany... Um, Congress, it was really the first time in colonial America's history where an attempt was made behind establishing a unified government. Who is uh, Edward Braddock? Let me ask you this, is Edward Braddock a native of colonial America or is he a native of London, England? He's a native of London, England. In 1754, he earned the rank of Major General. He became the lead commander of British forces in America with a primary mission, and that, was to, and that is to drive out the French along the western frontier, a.k.a. the Ohio Territory. I think it's going to be a daunting challenge, to say the least, knowing that the French and the Indians do have a very strong alliance in the Ohio Territory. Did George Washington serve under Major General Edward Braddock? Yes, he did. Washington served as a volunteer officer. Okay. Just a year earlier, Washington um, made an indecisive decision that may have um, sparked the... Um, beginning seeds of uh, hostilities between the French and the British along the frontier. But Washington's going to come back. He's going to make a comeback. And I guess the bigger question is, is it going to be a grand comeback, or is it going to be one of those comebacks that can um, help rehabilitate the um, indecisiveness from a year earlier? Well, we'll find that out here soon, but any one of those uh, realities is possible. What was um, Major General Edward Braddock's mission, other than, how do I say it, other than uh, driving out French, the French presence from the Ohio Valley? Well, for one, it's one thing to, yes, drive the French out of the Ohio Valley, but by driving them out, the British, the, the goal is for the British to take over this territory west of the Appalachian Mountains. After all, the British have already promised the colonists, say, hey, look, if we can drive the French out of the Ohio Territory, we'll open the doors to westward settlement. So this way, all of you who support the crown and support ousting the French from the Ohio Territory, if we deliver good on our promise, then you all will reap the rewards, and that is you all will have an opportunity to come westward 
to um, to populate territory that not only once belonged to the French, but also was in the hands of the Indians. It'll be interesting to see if the British really do keep their promise on that. So, Braddock's mission or plan, yes, involves taking his existing forces with volunteer militiamen. Okay, so yes, the, for, the, the, object, the primary objective is to drive the, the French out of the Ohio Valley, but he needs volunteer militiamen from, if not from all 13 colonies, he needs them from a majority of the colonies. But let me ask you this, does, does Major General Edward Braddock get the results he was looking for all along in terms of getting volunteer militiamen to join up with his existing forces? No, uh, his plans for success uh, were doomed from the start. Maryland promised to bring wagons for carrying the necessary provisions. Well, those provisions would mean like, you know, salted pork, salted beef, uh, tents, um, perhaps um, wagons that would be carrying essentials like, you know, tents or uh, shoes. Well, Maryland didn't bring the wagons. Pennsylvania failed to send horses. Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, all three of these colonies, folks, were unable to raise their required or requested number of troops in assisting the British regulars. Even the Indians failed to show up. That is, the Indians who... Thought, who were really serious about wanting to take up sides with the British. They failed to show. So now it seems like Major General Edward Braddock is stuck between a bad rock and a hard place. What happened to Major General Edward Braddock and his forces of over 1,450 British troops as they attempted to cross the Monongahela River on July 9, 1755? Well, let me ask you all this. Do any of you all know where the Monongahela River is located? Is it located in um, Maryland? Is it located in New Jersey or Pennsylvania? The answer is choice C, Pennsylvania. Where exactly is the Monongahela River in Pennsylvania located? Is it located in Philadelphia? Is it located in Harrisburg? Or is it located around present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Choice C, Pittsburgh. Not to get off track, but for those of you who are diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fans like I myself and my wife, many years ago from 1970 to 2000, the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, played at a stadium, and I remember it on television, called Three Rivers. Why did they call it Three Rivers? Because there were three rivers that made up uh, that um, that met up at the confluence. In other words, the uh, Ohio River met up at the confluence of the Allegheny and the Monongahela rivers. All three of these rivers met up with one another. So therefore, folks, the Monongahela River is in um, western Pennsylvania, what we know as Pittsburgh. And where my wife went to college in um, Elkins, West Virginia, Davis and Elkins, there is the Monongahela National Forest. So whenever you think of Monongahela, think of western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. Think of um, north-central West Virginia and into the uh, tip of West Virginia, which borders uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania, most notably Wheeling. So 
Again, what happens to Major General Edward Braddock and his force of over 1,450 British troops as they are trying to cross the Monongahela River on July 9th, 1755? Okay, well, it's not one answer, folks, but there's a, a multiple answers. Uh, for starters, French and Indian forces secretly assembled in the woods located east of Fort Duquesne. Okay, French and Indian forces... To me, it sounds like that fort's name is being Fort Duquesne was um, constructed and fortified by the French. The reason for why French and Indian forces are secretly assembling in the woods is because they are trying to block off Braddock's river crossing. At the same time, though, shots do get fired. Not just on one side, they get fired on both sides between the British and the, um, and what they are presumably thinking are just the French. They have no idea that Indian tribes, I think it's fair to say that they may have an assumption that there are a couple of Indian tribes who are involved in assisting the French. But at the same time, they have no idea that, that the unexpected is going to come in just a short amount of, a short matter of time. In other words, it's not going to be the French that they're going to be having to go up against. They're going to be going up against um, an enemy who's going to make their lives miserable within before the day's over. So yes, both sides have exchanged early firing. And ironically, at this early moment, the British appear to have the upper hand. Maybe it's fair to say that that the French have brought their forces out, and while they've been, and while a fair number of them have been shot, maybe the maybe the British are thinking, oh well, they came out too soon, they didn't bring everybody with them, and now that we've fired at them and more of their men lie dead than ours, we've still got a good um, clearance way to navigate through and not have to worry about any more surprise attacks. Well. To make, uh, well, how do I say this to you all? Yes, the British did appear to have the upper hand. However, French, additional French and Indian forces all of a sudden emerged from the trees. So in other words, they could have probably been, um, they were hiding behind trees. Think about it, they were, they were posing as decoys. You know, trees are, are trees can be big, folks. I mean, they're not always short um, short trees like Charlie Brown Christmas trees. Let's put it that way. But trees are big, and trees do offer protection, not just for animals, but they do offer protection for humans. And in this case, in times of war, trees can um, can help the enemy um, escape um, being captured. They can help the enemy. Um, what do you call it? Uh, Restrategize, so that if the if the opposition is coming way way into the woods, the opposition may not leave the woods alive. So, French and Indian forces emerge from the trees and begin firing rounds of shots, only to fall back into the forest. Did you hear that, folks? They fire rounds of shots, but then fall back. Does this sound like a um, a new way to fight war that's in a non-conventional manner? I think so. Let's find out more about that. British troops in large numbers now lay dead or wounded 
For those untouched, meaning that they were not shot at, but yet now feel the um, deadly impacts of what has happened before their eyes, knowing that many of their fellow comrades have, uh, are now lying uh, dead or, or severely wounded. For those untouched, the worst was to come. Shortly afterwards, when another group of Indians appeared out from the trees and fired upon British soldiers, only to have the same tactics be applied repeatedly without engaging in traditional European warfare. What is traditional European warfare, folks? That's where soldiers line up next to one another. And they often did that to, to ensure that by lining up next to one another that when firing towards the enemy, that the volley would be accurate enough to where, on the opposite side, those volleys would, um, would go as far as the eye could see to where the enemy would be knocked down. However, um, when you're out in the wilderness, um, traditional European warfare style of fighting is irrelevant. So the French and the Indians are now fighting a style. However, I should say that maybe the Indians were the one that really were the ones that really adopted this uh, first before the Europeans got a hold of it. However, the French have gotten a hold of it before the British. And here the British are the mightiest empire in the world, and they now are being beat. They're not just being beat, folks. They're getting annihilated. The French and the Indians are engaging in a fighting style that would become known as irregular, or what we call guerrilla warfare. So in other words, you don't send everybody out to fight in your regiment or in your uh, group. If you've got a hundred Indians, you might send 15 to 20 out at most. And remember folks, who has provided the Indians? The Indians aren't using bow and arrows at this point, folks. They're using guns. Europeans have provided Indians with guns ever since they came to the New World. But you take 20 Indians, they fire upon the British, they'll retreat, they'll fall back. You bring another 20 or 30 out, depending on how good your numbers are, you'll repeat that same strategy. The goal with irregular warfare, or what we call guerrilla warfare, is to weaken an enemy you may not annihilate his forces, but if you kill 10 or 15 of his men out of 40 or 50, it becomes harder not only to replace those that have been killed or wounded, it becomes harder to, um, for the enemy to um, regroup to where, to where the lost numbers that day may never come back in the future. In other words, the more numbers you, the more men you take down, even if it's not the grandest of numbers, it does weaken an enemy's ability to fight, not just short-term, but long-term. So this uh, irregular style of fighting does have psychological um, damage, and um, what do you call it? Um, it damages the confidence of the British. British officers are faring no better in this, um, in this uh, what do you call it, dramatic scene of unfolding events. The troops, I mean, in other words, British officers are faring no better, like the troops. 
Officers themselves were left stunned by French and Indian War fighting tactics, being the guerrilla or irregular warfare. The episode at Monongahela, how long do you think this all lasted, folks, this carnage? Did it last five hours? Did it last seven? Or did it last three? It only lasted three hours, folks. So in three hours' time, 977 out of 1,459 British troops lay dead or wounded. I did the math, the calculation rather. That means, folks, it's, there was a 67% casualty rate of British troops that either lay dead or wounded. That means, folks, that two-thirds of the 1,459 British troops who were trying to cross the Monongahela River either lost their lives or were severely wounded to where they could no, to where they could no longer fight. And as for officers, there were 86 officers, 26, um, 26 officers died. That's a 30% casualty rate right there. 30% doesn't seem like a lot, but when you have 26 out of 86 officers dying, that's a big deal. In other words, who's going to uh, take over the command of those troops that did survive, only for those troops to have lost two, two officers from their regiment? Because we have to remember, not all 1,459 troops were under one general. They were all broken down into different regiments with different commanders. 37 officers, including Major General Edward Braddock, suffered wounds. Five days later, on July 14, 1755, Major General Edward Braddock died from his wounds. How many British troops were left unscathed or unharmed from the events of July 9, 1755? 482. Part two question here is, uh, what volunteer officer had extensive knowledge regarding the Western wilderness? Was that George, How about George Washington? Washington's knowledge of the Western wilderness helped ensure that the remaining British troops did, in fact, make it back safe to the confines of their post, being Fort Cumberland. Well, you know, a year earlier, Washington's indecisiveness sparked the beginning flames of what would become the French and Indian War. A year later, it's fair to say that George Washington has redeemed himself. This was probably not the way he wanted to perhaps redeem himself, knowing that uh, Major General Edward Braddock has died. 67% of, of the 1,459 British troops are either dead or wounded. 26 out of 86 officers are gone. But someone had to take charge, folks. Someone had to have some kind of knowledge of the Western wilderness. Think about it. We don't have GPS systems back then, folks. We don't have OnStar. We don't have um, Google Maps. So is it fair to say that even Washington's surveying skills may have helped out in ensuring that the remaining British, trip, British troops did, in fact, arrive back to the, safe, to the confines of their uh, post? Absolutely so. So we can say that Washington did redeem himself. It may not have been under, under the circumstances he had hoped for, but he did redeem himself.
Whereas the French still retained the western lands, or what we call the Ohio Territory, British ships maintained control of the Atlantic Ocean. That doesn't come as a surprise. There is a good advantage for the British maintaining control of the Atlantic Ocean. How so? Well, it, well, it pretty much means that they, ha that they have to rely upon New England merchants for all arms purchases, even if the transactions themselves were illegal. Were American ships found to have supplied smuggled goods to French forces, most notably from uh, Nova Scotia? I hate to say this, folks, but yes, uh, there were a number of American ships that were found to have, in fact, smuggled uh, goods to French forces. Wait a minute, I thought the colonists were on the side of the British. But if I'm not mistaken, weren't uh, Massachusetts distillers, didn't they prefer French molasses being uh, imported into them versus the molasses coming from the British um, West Indies? Yes. So it's not all confined to just a um, unique commodity. Commodities can take on a whole other meaning, especially in a time of war. Even um, military ammunitions in times of war are not always going to be assured, or there's no guarantee that uh, military ammunitions will always get placed in the right hands in a time of war. So the smuggled goods are coming from New the New England colonies of Massachusetts and Rhode Island to um, middle colonies like New York. And the goods that were smuggled, folks, to French forces consisted of clothes to tents for the French army. Shouldn't these provisions be going to the British? Yes, but remember, there are many colonists who are not happy. And they haven't been happy for probably about the last 21 years, or just shy of over 20 years, especially when Parliament did enact that Molasses Act back in 1733, not just so much for the six pence, six pound per pence uh, or per penny um, tax increase, but it also had to do with trying with Parliament's ability to interfere in the industry, to interfere in the growth of an industry. In other words, Parliament was trying to curtail an industry's um, success, and that was um, New England's ability to get its hands on molasses that did not, um, that was not imported from England. It had been secretly imported from the French West Indies. High-ranking officials in England were deeply offended by how New England merchants uh, placed their own personal interests above the greater well-being of the mother country, England. Well, I could see how high-ranking officials in England were deeply offended. They thought they knew their subjects better. And it could be fair to say that even before 1765 that we could be seeing the beginning signs of what would one day be, be said by a future monarch in King George III when he um, said around 1765 that his subjects, being the 13 colonies, were starting to become ungrateful subjects. What British official was responsible for overseeing England's foreign and military affairs? How about Mr. William Pitt, who would be the first Earl of Chatham? 
you know, there is a place in Virginia, um, what is uh, south side of Virginia, not far from the Virginia-North Carolina line. It's not far from Danville and uh, not too terribly far maybe from South Boston, but it's a place called Chatham. And there is a county in Virginia called Pittsylvania County, which is probably tied to the uh, Pitt family. Uh, not too long ago, when my wife and I were visiting Colonial Williamsburg, um, as a matter of fact, it was in Christmas of last year, uh, one of the uh, docents uh, told us that uh, Pitt was a very common English last name in the 18th century. So anyways, for Mr. William Pitt, who is the uh, first Earl of Chatham, he, wrote a, he writes a letter to all royal colonial governors advising them to do everything necessary in cracking down on improper practices, or I should say acts, like merchants aiding the enemy, being France, with military provisions in time of war. Okay, this is a good start, but there's going to have to be more to, um, to really enforce this. So Parliament does support William Pitt's requests by enacting legislation allowing customs officers to obtain writs of assistance. Ah, writs of assistance, remember those folks, those written orders? So yes, uh, Parliament enacts legislation allowing customs officers to obtain the writs of assistance where um, customs officers would get full power behind conducting searches without needing to advise ahead of time what the issue or matter itself was at stake. So in other words, these writs of assistance now were giving customs officers the upper hand on collecting all taxes and fees with the ultimate objective of ending all outstanding illegal smuggling practices engaged by Massachusetts merchants. I thought, I, I thought with writs of assistance that it was one thing for an uh, for an officer to um, search someone's home or search someone's uh, property belongings. But didn't you need to have probable cause? Well, now to me it seems like Parliament is abusing this. And they're now saying, well, you know what? The customs officers can come on at any time they want and search um, Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith's property and not need to have any sufficient form of probable cause. I see this from a modern-day standpoint, as a violation of the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. The French and Indian War would last seven years, from 1756 to 1763. But the conflict itself probably could have ended a few years earlier had the majority of Massachusetts's merchants refrained from smuggling vital goods to French forces, which in the long run impacted Parliament's ability to collect overseas revenue to help finance the war. So aren't we looking at some double-edged swords here, folks? So all this time, you know, it is fair to say that many of Massachusetts's merchants were in fact hell-bent on getting revenge against England. Hey, you tried to curtail the growth on an industry? So why should we support you in a time of war? Which Massachusetts town was responsible for overseeing the majority of molasses uh, smuggling trade? I'll tell you this right now, it wasn't Boston. 
but I'll give you all some choices. Choice A is Salem. Choice B is Marblehead. Choice C, Gloucester. Answer is choice A, Salem. Of course, when I think of Salem, I think of those infamous Salem witchcraft trials from 1692. But Salem oversaw the large imports of French molasses coming in from the French uh, West Indies. Now, 1760, Sir Francis Bernard becomes the new Massachusetts governor. And at that same time, he appoints James Cockle, or Cockle, however you want to pronounce it, to become Salem's customs inspector. And within a short time, the shippers all of a sudden stop smuggling French molasses into Salem, and instead, the opposite is happening. That is, import the import duty-free British molasses is now making its way into um, Salem. However, this strategy, while it may have uh, benefited upper-level um, officials or just upper-level, um, yeah, upper-level officials in the in the British government, it's not really um, having any kind of a positive impact on the people of Salem, most notably Salem's merchants. Why so? Well, the new strategy behind importing duty-free British molasses into Salem, Massachusetts, benefited the British West Indies economy more so than Massachusetts's, where customs revenues rapidly declined. This, the matter itself was a, a deliberate scheme which never achieved it, it, the true objective. And what was the true objective? Eliminating all non-British goods coming into colonial America illegally. So basically, you know, they're trying, Parliament's getting this assumption, well, that, okay, if, if um, molasses coming into um, colonial America, most notably New England, is coming in from the British West Indies, that they will uh, stop doing what they were doing for so long and now, you know, come to their senses and behave like normal subjects ought to. Nope. Nothing really changed, but it did backfire on um, on the uh, on uh, Britain here. Uh, what exactly did James Otis Sr. and Jr. have in common? Remember we talked about James Otis Jr. from a previous podcast? He was the one that uh, represented a handful of um, merchants, in, um, New England merchants, most notably merchants from Massachusetts who... Um, who um, challenged that um, the writs of uh, assistance, those written orders uh, where uh, customs officials wanted to search a man's property even without having enough um, sufficient uh, probable cause to do so. So yes, we're going to uh, revisit James Otis Jr. here, and we're also going to learn some stuff about his dad, because this is important, folks. Well, so what exactly do James Otis Sr. and uh, James Otis Jr. have in common? Well, father and son were members of the Massachusetts um, legal, or rather I should say law profession. By the time James Otis Jr. became a lawyer, his father had already become an established veteran juryman of, Barnst of Barnstable, Massachusetts. You know, when I think of someone who is an established um, veteran jurymen, I tend to think of the um, the gentry in Virginia, most notably uh, living in Colonial Williamsburg or in the you know greater Tidewater area. They weren't paid to um, 
serve on a jury, but it was their required duty to fulfill their obligations given their status in society and make uh, and render decisions, court decisions, that would uh, benefit the greater community. So I think it's fair to say that even um, James Otis Sr., even though he's li they, the family lives in Massachusetts, there are probably a lot of similarities in terms of uh, fulfilling obligations. So around 1760, uh, the Chief Justice uh, vacancy becomes open for the Massachusetts Superior Court. And James Otis Sr.'s name is very, very high on the list. It's almost, to me, it would almost be assured that he's like the number one viable candidate. And his credentials are very, very um, worth, they're very worth mentioning because they, they would, to me, would support, um, they would support his, um, his right to, to be in this uh, position of, that is, of a Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. Um, Mr. Otis served as a judge for 25 years. He served at one time as Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, and he served as a militia commander for a period of time in the French and Indian War. So he probably served as a militia commander during the early uh, years of the uh, Seven Years uh, Conflict. Well, is it, I mean, did James Otis Sr. get this position of Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court? I hate to tell you this, folks, but he didn't. Why was he denied? Well, he was denied on, a, on, on some very unique grounds. The other side, being uh, Parliament or those um, whose uh, loyalties are to king and country, and they're, when I think of the, the men whose loyalties are very strong to, to king and country, how about, you know, like the, the Hutchinsons and the Olivers? who are related to one another. The Hutchinsons and the Olivers firmly believe that James Otis Sr. would have taken up sides with merchants whom smuggled non-British goods into their ports, along with having empathy towards those whom advocated advanced issuances of writs based upon probable cause. In other words, James Otis Jr., or James Otis Sr., is, is does not believe in um, in people's um, in people going around searching um, a man's home without any um, evidence of uh, pro without any um, true probable cause. In other words, you can't just search someone's home without having enough evidence that um, solidifies every. Um, valid reason for obtaining what we would call a search warrant. So who ends up becoming uh, the new Chief Justice to the Massachusetts Superior Court? Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, Jr. Although Hutchinson at times believed that issuing writs of assistance was necessary, However, he was not a big fan of issuing writs of assistance because he didn't believe that, um, that a customs officer needed sufficient probable cause. He basically supported customs officials coming onto vessels by conducting searches 
without any sign of probable cause. So there you have it. If, you, if your loyalties are to king and country and you're trying to restore order, why appoint someone in your eyes who's not going to restore order and, and 3,000 miles away uh, in England? Your focus is on getting order restored where it needs to be restored so that all 13 colonies, most notably in the New England region, will become faithful and loyal subjects. Prior to 1760, James Otis Jr. had served as the king's attorney to the king's advocate general in the vice admiralty court. And by the time 1760 comes around and when James Otis Sr. got denied um, the uh, chief justice um, position for the Massachusetts Superior Court, all existing allegiances or loyalties to the crown for James Otis Jr. cease to exist as a result of his father's denial to the chief just as a result of his father's um, denied um, request um, to the chief justice post. What prominent Bostonian merchant, along with his nephew, and his nephew was a business partner, and he will be mentioned um, a great deal in other podcasts down the road of American Tempest. Uh, what prominent Bostonian merchant, along with his nephew and business partner, supported James Otis Jr.'s views regarding writs of assistance to protection of man's property? Thomas Hancock and his nephew, John Hancock. Do you hear that, folks? Thomas Hancock's nephew, John Hancock. So let's keep uh, John Hancock in our minds uh, for future podcasts. James Otis Jr.'s most ardent supporter behind writs of assistance and assuring that writs of assistance were administered properly to protection of man's property was none other than Samuel Adams Jr., 1740 Harvard graduate, whom sadly went from being ranked at the bo- from being ranked at the top, being in the top five of his class to the bottom of the class, due to the land bank debacle that uh, forced um, that basically no longer gave farmers the upper hand when um, when uh, ish- when providing merchants with uh, paper money at um, when uh, going to the market. Remember that land bank um, scheme? Well, for Samuel Adams, after, gra- after he graduated from Harvard, um, he never really was able to find a true um, niche, or I should say groove, when it came to um, job occupation. He failed at every business um, occupation he held. Instead of providing for himself, including a family, I mean, yes, he did have a family. I mean, he did care about his wife and children, but he struggled to provide for them. He squandered all of his inheritances by giving away money to friends whom were financially irresponsible to not demonstrating an ounce of commitment towards work, like running the family brewery, which went into bankruptcy because of his bad... um, because of his um, bad mismanagement with the money. You know, how come he didn't have a bookkeeper back then? I mean, how come he didn't have someone who was probably more financial smart than he was? I don't know. I don't have all those answers. But 
I will just point this out now. One of the reasons why Sam Adams, why they still call it Sam Adams Brewery, is for the um, is for this reason. Not, I mean, it's it's a fundamental reason, folks. But before I tell you that, we'll mention this here. 1758, two years after the uh, Seven Years' War breaks out, Sam Adams's parents, both of them, have passed away. And finding steady employment to running a family business is simply just not Sam Jr.'s cup of tea. However, he, before his parents pass away, he goes on to find, or I should say establish, a uh, political club which included other dissatisfied young men. These men banded together to write political articles for the newspaper that was founded. So the reason why Sam Adams's brewery still exists is because is because of his brilliant penmanship. In other words, Sam Adams may not have had the brains of a of a businessman who would be on the cover of Fortune 500, but he had enough brains to be an excellent writer, an excellent writer who kept the flames alive for what would eventually one day become the inevitable, a.k.a. separation from England? Is it fair to say that perhaps Sam Adams's writings and his political views may have kept flames alive in reminding his own fellow um, countrymen that, hey, look, even if we might be at a moment's peace, don't assume that this, moment's, that this um, present moment will still have the same level of peace a year from now, or even let alone two weeks from now. In other words, we may have happiness today, but that happiness we have now will always be in jeopardy if England is, if Parliament and the Crown are constantly encroaching upon our fundamental rights, which in my opinion are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So Sam Adams's pen penmanship or his article writings along with connections amongst the disenfranchised helped propel his political movement geared towards standing up to all things um, England. And what I mean by all things England, how about all things that would represent anti-England, anti-British uh, policies. And that also includes leaders like Thomas Hutchinson and Peter Oliver, whom... Um, whom played a part in dissolving the land bank, just like Parliament had, that, that land bank that Sam Adams' father um, created to help uh, those struggling farmers who were struggling in, because they were cash-strapped. James Otis Jr. and Sam Adams are now connected together politically. How so? By Parliament's injustices. We're not anywhere near 1765 just yet, folks. But even as the Seven Years' War is going along, there are injustices that Parliament is doing. Yes, we're probably fueling the fire on our end as well by, by smuggling goods that are you know non-British goods. But at the same time, where did the first seeds of discontent arise from? Go back to 1733, the Molasses Act. Parliament had not only 
enacted legislation to curtail the growth on a successful industry, but by doing so without the consent of the people whom were governed from below, meaning the colonists. So, over time, folks, direct violation of uh, consent does catch up. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, as always, and when I'm on the air again next, uh, we're going to learn um, information about um, George Grenville. I'm not sure if he's an American or if he is um, an Englishman. He's one or the other, but that is one of a handful of things that we will be learning about uh, when I'm on the air again next time with you guys. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you for listening. Uh, you guys are great, and keep up the good work because I have no doubts that many of you all who have been listening to my podcasts have been sharing information with other people who are just as eager to listen to uh, the podcasts that you all have been listening to from me. So thank you, and you all have a great evening, no matter where you live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. And for those of you who live elsewhere around the world, you might it might already be Thursday for you guys. But again, thank you for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Take care for now, and stay safe.